0: Our sermon this morning is on Abraham and Sarah, Genesis chapters 12 through uh, 20. Last week we met uh, Abraham and we kind of saw the promises that God made to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. We saw those promises enshrined into a covenant. We saw the rite of circumcision that was kind of instituted to accompany that covenant. Today we're going to meet Sarah. And we're going to get to, to know Abraham and his wife, Sarah, and kind of see some of their uh, adventures, see their, their story unfold as they kind of travel from uh, their family where God called them out of and kind of where God is telling them to, to go. So a uh, lot, lot, of, lot of Bible text. We're not going to read it up front because it would, it would, uh, make, it would make the sermon very long. Uh, so we're just going to pray and then just jump right in to, to Genesis chapter 12 and following. <clears throat> Father in heaven... We ask your blessing on us this morning as we read your word and listen to your word and meditate on your word and seek to apply your word. Lord, we ask that you would speak to our hearts. We ask that you would convict us. We ask that you would uh, encourage us. We ask that you would give us grace. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So we'll starting in Genesis chapter 12, we did up to verse nine uh, last week, so we're going to pick up in verse 10 and just kind of walk through a few verses here. And then we're going to skip probably to 17, 18 and 20 along the way, but we'll follow along. It says, "Now there was a famine in the land, and so Abram and his family, uh, Abram, Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, uh, for the famine was severe in the land." This is uh, the first time that we see anyone kind of sojourning down to the land of Egypt in the Bible, not the last. Right? It's kind of a recurring theme. Joseph is sold by his brothers into Egypt. Eventually Joseph's family follow him down into Egypt to get food, kind of like Abraham's doing here. Uh, Jesus, when he's born, Herod kind of has this you know, uh, edict to, to take the lives of all of the, the young, young males in Israel. So, jo- so Mary and Joseph and Jesus sojourn down into, into Egypt. But uh, every time that, that any one anyone of the people of God go down into Egypt, nothing good happens. It's, like a, it's, it's bad, right? Right? Like, I mean, it's, it's kind of associated with sin and idolatry and slavery and oppression and murder and, and genocide and the killing of children. Those are the things that you kind of uh, associate with Egypt throughout the, the Bible. So Abraham is going down to Egypt, and this is kind of not meant to be like a happy, joyous thing. This is a sad thing that, that's happening. Verse 11, when he was about to enter into Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And when the Egyptians see you, they will say, This is his wife. And then they will kill me, but they will let you live. So say that you are my sister, that it may go well with you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. This is not Abraham's finest hour, this is not his best idea. Abraham, Abraham at this point is 75 years old, at least. I mean, we're not telling not sure, but at least 75 years old. Uh, Sarah is 10 years younger than him, so she is 65 years old. And apparently she is uh, quite attractive, so she's 65, probably looks 35. Uh, and Abraham says, you know, I'm, I know how these things work. Uh, These big kingdoms and the big, powerful rulers that preside over them, they have unilateral power. They can take whatever they want from anyone that they want. They take the most attractive women into their harem to sleep with. So so we're here out of necessity. Our choices were either stay in Canaan and starve to death or come and try our chances here in Egypt. But, But being here in Egypt, with Pharaoh being the man that he is, I am as good as dead. So... Why don't we just uh, say that you're my sister? Hopefully, no one will hurt me. You, you, so you will probably get hurt. Like you will be taken into Pharaoh's harem. You'll be abused in all likelihood. Assaulted. Probably get an STD. Things are not going to turn out for you, Sarah. But for me, they'll be they'll be fine. That's kind of Abraham's uh, scheme. All right, again, this is not his, this is not his finest hour. This is not, Abraham is not serving as a shining example of what husbands should be or what they should uh, aspire to. God calls husbands to be faithful to their wives, love their wives, protect their wives, provide for their wives, make sure that no harm comes uh, to their, their wives. And Abraham says... I've got an idea. Why don't we put you in harm's way so that I can stay out of harm's way? I want to protect myself, my uh, comfort, my life, and I want to put you uh, in jeopardy uh, in order to in order to do that. Throwing Sarah to the wolves to to save his. It looks eerily like Adam uh, in the garden, right? Adam in the garden. Eve is, is being uh, you know attacked by this. This serpent that wants to kill her and Adam uh, conceivably would have the opportunity to step in, intervene, stand in between Eve and this deadly serpent. And he just kind of stands there, passively lets it happen and kind of says, you, you take the bullet, right? I'll stand behind you. You get bit by the poisonous snake. You put yourself at risk in order to protect me from the danger that I don't want to be, to be near. And that's kind of Abraham is following in Adam's footsteps here. Verse 14. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful, and the princes of Pharaoh saw her, and they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. So exactly what Abraham thought would happen, ends up happening. Pharaoh notices her, has her brought to him. Verse 16, and he, and for her sake, he dealt well with Abraham. He had sheep and oxen and male donkeys and male servants and female servants and female donkeys and, and camels. So, so Abraham has essentially trafficked his own wife into sex slavery, as it were. Uh, and he profits from it. He gets rich from it. He, uh, you know, Pharaoh has limitless resources. He basically owns everything in all of Egypt. And he says, you know, I, I can take a drop in the bucket of my vast resources and give you life- altering, life-changing wealth and, and resources for, for you. So, so Abraham uh, gets rich. He, he is rewarded monetarily for this, uh, this wicked, self-serving, dishonest scheme that he is, that he is, has hatched. Right? Uh, I mean in the short term, in the near term, dishonesty, selfishness, right love of money. Uh, Love of self, love of security, putting others in jeopardy so that I can be comfortable and safe. Those things, uh, you know, those things can appear to work out uh, in the near term, uh, depending on your your vantage point. Verse 17, but the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So so as soon as uh, Sarah, you know, comes into Pharaoh's house, he gets sick. People in his household get sick, and he, he figures it out. Verse eighteen, he says, uh, "Why? What is this that you've done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife?" So, I mean, either either he, the Lord, may maybe appeared to him in a dream, or or maybe some he just had a suspicion, and he kind of sent uh, someone to gather intel. But he figured it out. She's your wife. Why did you say that she's your sister? So that I will take her for my wife. Now then, here is your wife. Take her and and go. This is meant to, to, you know, this is meant to kind of be biting and, and almost um, ironic or, or convicting, right? Abraham is, right? I mean, so Moses wrote this book. And so uh, everyone that's reading it would be looking to Abraham as their, the forefather of their faith. The prototypical example of faith in God. Walking with God, like God chose Abraham after Babel. After everyone was kind of scattered across the world, confused to speak different languages, they're worshiping different gods and idols. Abraham is the one guy that God kind of settled on and said, "You are the guy that I'm going to start over with." And and so you've got you've got Abraham that should be the pinnacle of righteousness and faith, and you've got Pharaoh, this wicked idolatrous. Pharaoh thought that he was God incarnate, walking. Uh, on on earth, right? And so you would think that if anyone is going to be re- rebuking anyone else, it would be Abraham rebuking Pharaoh. Abraham explaining to Pharaoh what he needs to do, how he needs to change his life, how he needs to come into alignment with God's will, and yet Pharaoh is rebuking Abraham. Right? This prophet of God is being schooled by this pagan, idol-worshiping Foreign king. Moses is going out of his way here to make it abundantly clear to anyone who reads this text that Abraham is is far from I mean far from perfect. He's he's called by God. He's being used by God. He going to be he's going to play a huge role in the plans of God, and yet he is uh, an, an imperfect vessel, right? He is someone who falls prey to doubt, succumbs to fear exhibits selfishness, puts his wife at risk. To, Abraham is a, is a knucklehead. He's a, he's a sinner. And, and if Abraham had to rely on his own works, his own faithfulness, his own ability to, to exemplify the will of God, he'd be, he'd be doomed. The only reason that Abraham has made it this far is the, is the grace and the unmerited favor of God. Verse 20, And then Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, With his wife and with all that he had, so Pharaoh sends uh, Abraham away, uh, right? And and kind of gives up all the stuff that he gave back in 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 verse sixteen. You know, he says, "You can have all that stuff, um, you know, but but just just leave." Right? Again, the the idea that that. As as Christians, when we look at people who exhibit wicked, selfish, sinful behavior, we're kind of you know our, our expectation, or our hope, or our vision is that man, I I want to see God's judgment kind of uh, happen very quickly. Right? I want, when when I when someone is disrespectful to me, when someone cuts me off in traffic and then zooms off, I want to see them you know run out of gas a mile down the road. Right? When when someone at work you know is is dishonest or does something, I, I want to see it catch up with. With him, And that's not always the case, right? Sometimes sinful, wicked behavior brings about material gains, you know, in, in the short term. Abraham might think here that he's, you know, been a wise guy, right? He, he's kind of hatched this scheme. He's saved himself from any harm that would have come on him. And actually Sarah herself was, was, you know, spared from harm by God's grace. And he just ended up with this kind of nest egg of, of money uh, that he can kind of leave with. You might be thinking, man, I really really pulled one off here. But as we see the story unfold through Scripture, we're going to see that exactly the opposite is the case. One of the things that that Pharaoh gave, uh, you know, Abraham, money, animals, male servants, female servants. One of the female servants, presumably, that Pharaoh gave to Abraham, her name was Hagar. And we're going to study this more in depth next week when we look at Abraham and Hagar and Hagar's son that Abraham fathers with her named Ishmael. But there's a lot of heartache that comes from uh, that comes from from you know these these things that that Pharaoh gives to Abraham result in a lot of, not, not just like not just in the book of Genesis and in the subsequent generations as we look through Exodus and following but all the way until today right the drama that happened between Abraham and Sarah and her son Isaac and Abraham and Hagar and her son Ishmael affect geopolitical relations to this very day between Israel and Palestine. So so you look at you look at Abraham and you think, man, this guy got away with something. Uh, you know, maybe if you're wise enough, if you're smart enough like Abraham, you can kind of get away with, with wickedness and selfishness and actually kind of end up on top. The the wheels of justice turn slowly, but they grind exceedingly fine. Proverbs 10 says, whoever walks in integrity walks securely. But whoever makes his ways crooked will be found out. Maybe not in the near term, but certainly in the, in the long term. <clears throat> so, that's Genesis 12. We see this kind of uh, bizarre, strange, weird, kind of perverse plan from Abraham to save his own skin that ends up kind of putting money in his own pocket. In chapter uh, 13, uh, Abraham and his uh, nephew Lot go their, sec- their separate ways. Uh, Abraham gives Lot his first choice of where he wants to go, and he goes to Sodom and Gomorrah. So he's not the, the sharpest tool in the, in the shed. Lot goes there. Genesis 14, uh, Lot and his family are attacked. These pirate kings come and attack, and they carry Lot and his family off. He sends a messenger to go get Abraham. Abraham goes and kind of fights and, and rescues Lot. Genesis 15, we looked at that last week. The Abrahamic covenant, God's promises are kind of made into a formal covenant with a ceremony. Genesis 16, we'll look at that more in depth next week. That's the story of Abraham and Hagar um, and, and uh, yeah, kind of how that, how that plays out. Genesis 17, we looked at that last week. That's the, the reiterating of the, of the covenant, Abrahamic covenant with the covenant of circumcision. So we'll pick up the story in Genesis 17, verse 15. And God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her Sarai, but you should call her Sarah." I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her. She will become nations. Kings of people shall come from her. So again, uh, at this point, uh, Abraham has already... um, Had had an adulterous relationship with Hagar so that he could father a son with Hagar because he's heard God promise to him, you're going to have a son, I'm going to make a great nation out of you, you're going to have more descendants than you can see in the uh, stars than you can see in the sky at night. And he's like, I'm not sure how this is going to happen, so I'm going to give God a hand, I'm going to help him out, and I'm going to have a child with my uh, wife's maidservant. And God comes to him and says, no, I'm, I'm not intending for you to to start a nation with the the descendants of your wife's maidservant. You're going to have a child through Sarah, who at this point is, you know, is is getting old. She's getting on in years. Verse 17, Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said, Shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? So at this point, Abraham is ninety-nine, Sarah is eighty-nine, And he's like, this is ridiculous. By the time we, if we were to conceive a child right now, we wouldn't have that child until I'm 100 and she is 90. Verse 18, oh, maybe, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Like, God, why don't you just use Ishmael to accomplish your promises? I've already got a son. He's 13 years old. I had him when I was 86, right? So let's use Ishmael. I won't tell anyone if you won't, right? Like, you. You know, you don't have to do the heavy lifting of, these, of this, like, miraculous, like, conception and childbirth that you're talking about. I don't have to deal with another crying baby at a hundred years old. Verse 19, God says, no, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after them. So I want my promises Uh, to come through a child, Abraham, not a child that is brought about by your scheming and your kind of arranging things uh, in a way that you can accomplish. I want my promises to come about through a child that I brought through a divine miracle. And In in Galatians chapter 4, Paul actually uh, explains this exact idea. He kind of contrasts Ishmael, the son of Hagar, and Isaac, the son of Sarah, and says that those two children are representative of two different covenants, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Right? The Old Covenant right, operates on the basis of works. Try your best. Take matters into your own hands. Right? And this covenant is represented by Abraham having taken matters into his own hands with Hagar, and now he's got a son, Ishmael. The New Covenant operates on the basis of grace, the promises of God. God miraculously brings life out of death. God miraculously does that which is impossible. And God receives the glory for it, not man. And that covenant is represented by Isaac being born to Sarah, whose womb is a coffin. It's it's dead. There's no possibility that Sarah could ever have a child. God says, that's the woman that I'm choosing to be the mother of Of my nation. Verse 20 As for Ishmael, I have heard you. And behold, I have blessed him, and I will make him fruitful, and I will multiply him greatly. And he shall father twelve princes, and I shall make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. So God says, I still love Ishmael. He's a person created in my image, right? He's the result of a foolish choice on the part of Abraham and Sarah. He's born out of sexual immorality, born out of adultery and folly. But I still love him and I care about him, right? Even if a child was conceived in sinful circumstances, I, God, still love that child, value that child, care about that child. They matter to me. They have dignity and worth and they are precious to to me. Verse 22. When he had finished talking with him, God went up from Abraham, and then Abraham took Ishmael his son and all those born in his house, or bought with his money, every male among the men of Abraham's house, and he circumcised the flesh of their foreskins that very day, as God said to him. Abraham was 99 years old when he was circumcised, and Ishmael his son was 13 years old when he was circumcised. And that very day, Abraham and his son Ishmael were circumcised, all the men of his house, those born in the house, and those those bought with money from a foreigner were circumcised with him. So that's the family unit now. 99-year-old Abraham, uh, you know, his uh, wife's maidservant Hagar, uh, their 13-year-old son Ishmael, and then you've got 89-year-old Sarah, who experienced infertility for decades when she uh, hypothetically would have been able to conceive, and now she is well past you know menopause and, and is, is not able to conceive of a child. That's kind of the the family unit that we're looking at. Chapter 18, verse 1. And the Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, and as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. And Abraham uh, lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of them. And he saw them, and he ran from the tent to door to meet them, and bowed himself to the earth, and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servants. Let a little water be brought to wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree uh, while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. Uh, and after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. And they said, Do as you have, have said. So, uh, three men approach Abraham's tent. Uh, Abraham is immediately taken aback. Uh, he, he realizes that this is something significant. He runs to them. I don't know if you've ever seen a 99 year old man run. I don't know if I've seen one anything but sit so he he, he runs to these so he knows that these are special visitors and what we're going to see as the story unfolds is that three these three visitors one is is God himself it's it's the I mean the pre-incarnate Christ as it were it's God in human form here to visit and speak with Abraham and the other two are angels that kind of have the appearance of men we can tell that from later on in this uh, in this uh, in chapter 18 verse 22 we see that the God or the, that one of these three is, is God it's probably Christ. And then in chapter 19, verse 1, we see that the other two are, are angels. So Abraham runs to them and says, hey, let me, like, let us, let us kind of be hospitable here. Let us make, make a meal. Let's spend some time together. Verse 6, and Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three seas of fine flour kneaded and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf, a tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk, and the calf, and he prepared it and he set it before them. And he stood under the calf, or he stood under the tree while they ate. <clears throat> this is like a classic, you know, like, oh, come on in, we'd love to have you, let me prepare a meal for you. And he's like, Sarah, prepare a meal for them. Like, do, you know, make, get, get one of my servants to prepare food. Sarah, you do, you do this. This is kind of a, a lesson in, you know, hospitality for husbands, which is that um, I mean, a lot. Of, it, it's it's not wrong if if you're if husbands and wives kind of have these distinctive you know roles that they like to like to, to you know operate in. If, if wives like preparing things, making their home, uh, you know, hospitable, welcoming people into their home, they kind of enjoy. it, That's perfectly fine. But but uh, when the Bible calls Christians to be hospitable, that's not just a call just to women and not men. In fact, one of the el- one of the qualifications for eldership in 1 Timothy 3, is for elders uh, to be hospitable, which doesn't mean elders, like, make sure that your wives are hospitable. It means elders are called to show hospitality. Right? More than inviting people over and then letting your wife take care of everything, it actually means being hospitable in and of your yourself. So, he goes, finds Sarah, um, has her prepare a meal. He hangs out with them while they're eating. Sarah kind of hangs back inside the tent. Verse 9, we see, uh, they said to him, where is Sarah? Where is your wife? And he said, she is in the the tent. Verse 10, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. This is Jesus talking. This is a a pre-incarnate Christ, God in human form, talking to Abraham, uh, reiterating this promise that he's made over and over and over, you're going to have a son with your wife, even though you guys are older, even though it looks uh, unlikely, you're going to have uh, a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now, Sarah and Abraham, now Abraham and Sarah were old and advanced in years, and the way of women had ceased to be with Sarah, so she's postmenopausal. Verse 12. So Sarah laughed to herself and said. After, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure now? So, Sarah <clears throat> thinks that this promise from God that she's going to get pregnant, she's going to give birth to a child, and a year later she's going to be holding an infant son in her arms. she finds that uh, hilarious, ridiculous, right? God, you had decades... Decades when we were trying to have kids, and uh, we couldn't. I was praying that we could have kids, and I heard nothing from you. And now, uh, you know, when when I'm 65, you call us to leave our home, leave our family, become these sojourners. And then you give this promise to my husband that he's going to have kids. But then years and years go by with that, and nothing comes of it. And eventually we decide, well, I guess God wants us to... You know, find some alternative method, but find a surrogate to have a son that we could have because certainly God has no intention of of help, of allowing me to have any children with my husband, right? Don't be. This is hilarious. This this is ridiculous. This is hilarious, and she's laughing at the promises of God. Right? It, it sounds eerily similar to the serpent in the garden who comes up to Eve and says, Did God really say that you can't eat of any tree in the garden? Like, did, are you, Do you really believe the words of God, the promises of God? Do you really take that seriously? It's a joke. It's, it's laughable. God's word is more fit for laughing at than it is for trusting in. There's no way that that's going to come true how the serpent kind of approaches Eve, and that's kind of how Sarah is approaching the word of God here. It's a joke. It's, it's not something I trust in, it's something that I, that I laugh at. <clears throat> Which is a posture that's all too, all too common. In the world, it's all too common in the church. It may even be lurking in our own hearts somewhere. Right? A God who you know a god who accomplishes supernatural miracles heals the sick raises people from the dead that's ridiculous that's outrageous that's, that's no one believes that stuff anymore the, the, the virgin birth that's silly what kind of backwoods uneducated you know person would believe in that justification by faith what a what a joke right, right. i'm supposed to believe that i am not good enough To merit my own salvation? Have you met me? Do you know how awesome I I am? God would be a fool to not want to have me around. I'm, I'm supposed to trust in someone else, the righteousness from another person to be imputed to me in order to be saved? Who could possibly be better than me, more moral than me, more spiritual than me? What a joke. God calls me to love my neighbor as myself? That's ridiculous. I'll love myself, and maybe if there's room left over, I'll love my neighbor. God wants me to give generously to my local church. What a joke. No financial advisor would counsel you to just give your money away. Save it. Invest it. Spend it. Don't have sex until you're married. Ha-ha. Hilarious. Good one. Right? You you can't... That is such a... A foreign concept in our, like, you watch TV right now, and even the characters that are supposed to be, like, conservative and religious and, like, judgmental, even they are sexually active, right? It's like the writers are thinking, like, come on, that's, you know, no, no one doesn't, you know, no one is not sexually active before they're married anymore. That's crazy. Men are to exercise headship in the church. The office of pastor and elders is reserved for males. Men are to exercise headship in the home. Fathers have a unique responsibility to lead their wives and children and shepherd them towards spiritual maturity. Ha ha, that's hilarious, right? What is this, leave it to beaver? Men are men, women are women. God created them differently, but, but they both reflect uh, different aspects of the character of God. They're equal in worth and value, but they have roles that are different and complementary uh, in, in function, What a joke. That's laughable. No one believes that anymore. Right? This like spirit, this attitude, this posture of Sarah to hear the word of God and laugh at it. Stand in judgment over it. I'll believe what I want to believe from the words of God, but I'm not going to believe everything. And the things that I don't believe I think are hilarious. I think that they are are laughable. Verse 13, the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? And say, shall I bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard or is anything too wonderful for me? At the appointed time, I'm telling you, at the appointed time, I will return about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Right? What's so funny? Sarah, what are you, what are you laughing at? Right? I'm the sovereign God of the universe. I can make this, make this happen. And Sarah denies it and says, I did not laugh because she was afraid. It's one thing, to, it's one thing to, to lie to another person about what's going on in your heart and in your mind and in your soul. 1 Corinthians 2 says that no one can know what's going on inside the heart of a man except the man himself. But you can't do it with God because God does know what's going on in your heart. And God says, no, you did, you did laugh. Right? You might be able to fool some of the people some of the time, but you can't fool all the people all the time. God sees everything. God gets the last word. Which means when God calls you to account, uh, the appropriate response is not to deny, blame shift, lie, deceive. I didn't do that. I didn't say that. I didn't think that. The appropriate response when God convicts a person of their sin is to say, you're right. I'm wrong. You're righteous. I'm a sin. Isaiah chapter 6. I am a man of unclean lips. And I am from a people of unclean lips. Forgive my sin. Help me to forgive those who sin uh, against me. Right, Sarah, Sarah kind of has this posture of, my pri- like whatever I say and do in private behind the closed doors of this tent is my business and nobody else's. So I'm just going to lie about it because I don't think that God is able to call me out on it. As opposed to saying, God, I've sinned. I'm undone. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Please help me to change. Please show me uh, how I can repent, and I'll do it. <clears throat> Chapter 18 continues. These two angels that are with Abraham and with this pre-incarnate uh, Christ figure uh, leave, and they head towards Sodom. Abraham talks to uh, God talks to Abraham about how He's going to destroy Sodom. Abraham pleads that God would show mercy to Sodom, but really on behalf of his uh, nephew Lot, who he knows is there. Chapter 19: the angels go to Sodom; uh, they get Lot's family out of Sodom just in time before God destroys the city. <clears throat> and then in Genesis chapter 20, we see another uh, epi- We see another misstep, another, another foolish episode from. From Abraham. You, if you're not careful when you're reading your Bible, you'll think that you accidentally like, flipped back and are reading the same story again. Right from there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur, and he sojourned in Gerar. And Abraham said to his wife Sarah, or Abraham said of his wife Sarah, she is my sister. And Ab- Abimelech, the king of Gerar, sent and took Sarah. But God came to Abimelech in a dream and said to him, Behold, you are a dead man, because the woman that you have taken, she is a man's wife. That will stop you in your tracks. When God himself says that he's going to kill you, and Abimelech is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Verse 4. right? Lord, are you going to kill an innocent person? Like, did, did Abraham himself not say to me that she is my sister? And she herself said that he is my brother, in the, like, I swear, right, in in the integrity of my heart, and the innocence of my hands, I have not done this. Right, Abimelech's like, dude, it it was Abraham, Abraham practically begged me to do it. Like, I went to Abraham, and I was like, hi, I'm Abimelech. And he's like, hi, I'm Abraham. This is Sarah. She's my sister, not my wife. Would you like to sleep with her? If you do, it's totally cool with me. Don't, like, I have no objections to that. And Abimelech's like, look, he, like, he brought, he, He told me to do it. Go talk to Abraham. Then God sent to Abimelech in a dream and said, Yes, I know that you have done this in the integrity of your heart, and it was I who kept you from sinning against me. I am the one who did not let you touch Sarah. Now then, return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, so that he will pray for you, and you shall live. But if you do not return to her, know that you will surely die, you and all who are yours. So God says, I believe you. Now take Sarah, you know, before, any, before you do anything that you can't undo, take Sarah back to Abraham, everything will be fine. Verse 8, Abimelech rose early in the morning and called his servants and told them all these things. And the men were very much afraid. And Abimelech called Abraham and said to him, why have you done this to us? And now I have sinned against you that you have brought, or ha, how have I sinned against you, Abraham, that you have brought on me in my kingdom this great sin? What have you have done to me, things that ought not to be done? What did you see that you did this thing, right, Abraham? What's the deal? Like, what? Like, dude, like I'm a pretty nice guy. Like, I, when God comes and speaks to me, I listen to Him, and when God tells me to bring Sarah back to you, I bring her back to you. Like, I don't understand what. I don't understand what, why the disconnect. Why did you? Like, what did you think was going to happen if you just said, "Hey, this is my wife. This is our family." Like, what's what's the deal, Abraham? Verse eleven. Abraham said, "I did it because I thought there is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife." So again, same as before, right? Between Abimelech and Abraham, one of them is acting pretty exemplary, exemplararily. One of them is acting is acting in a way that's pretty exemplary, right? He's obeying God. He's listening to God. He's not not deceiving and hatching these schemes. And one of them is. And so Abraham says, oh, no, like, the reason I did this bad thing, the reason I did this wicked, selfish, sinful, deceptive thing is because I know how bad you are, you people are, like me and my people, my family, the people like me, we are good. You and people like you are bad. That's why I lied and cheated and, and put my wife in harm's way to save my own skin. I did, I did, right, the end justifies the means. I did this bad thing because I knew how bad you are. And I knew that I needed to preemptively protect myself from how bad you are. And Abimelech's thinking, dude, the only one that's bad here is you. Who's lying and facilitating adultery and, and inappropriate relationships. And yet Abraham... Feels entirely justified. Right? Abraham has this like it's us for, Abraham's a culture warrior, right? He's, it's us versus them. There's me, people like me, we're good, there's people like them, they're bad. Good people think like I think, they have the same values and priorities as I do, right? Right? Everyone who doesn't think and act like me, they're bad, they're godless. As opposed to having the, the posture of a missionary. Who says, God has called me here to live among these people, love them, be a part of their culture, build relationships, love my neighbor, meet needs, share the gospel, help people come to know Christ, help them to walk with Christ in newness of life, right? Abraham sees all the people around him, not as neighbors that need to be loved and served, but rather as enemies that need to be defeated and argued with, right? We need to to maximize our influence and minimize their influence. Influence, and he ends up hating the people that he's called to be among, and he ends up justifying egregious sin because, right, like all's fair in love and war. And if I'm at war with these people, if they're bad and I'm good, then I, I can do anything. I, I'm, I have it, I have license to do anything that I want in order to protect myself and in order to make sure that I win and they lose. That's why I did this wicked thing. That's reason number one, because you're bad, you're godless, and I'm good, and I'm godly. Reason number two is in verse 12. Besides, she is my sister. She's the daughter of my father, though not the daughter of my mother, and she became my wife. Does that make it any better? (laughs) Right, they're like, dude, why did you give your wife to us so, like, that's weird and sick and twisted and perverted to give your wife to another man so that he can sleep with her. And he's like, no, it's cool. She's, I married my sister. That's, like, why? They're like, it doesn't make it any better. That's also weird and gross. And per- In fact, that's sinful, according to Leviticus chapter 18. You're not allowed to marry the daughter of your wife, even if it's not with the same mother. So you're not helping your case here, Abraham. Verse 13, And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, This, con- this is the kindness that you must do to me, Sarah. At every place to which we come, say of me, He is my brother. Right? So it's like when the cop pulls you over and is like, you were speeding, going five over. You're like, I'm sorry. I was driving fast. It's because I murdered someone. I was trying to get away. Like, you're, he's like getting, it's getting worse. He's like, oh, yeah, I do this all the time. Not only was it just once in, in Egypt with Pharaoh and now twice here with you, Abimelech, but this is just like standard practice. Everywhere we go, I just try to encourage other men to sleep with my, with my wife so that I can, you know, have, have a safe, comfortable life. Abraham has this, this recurring pattern of boneheaded mistakes over and over. Verse 14, Then Abimelech took sheep and oxen, male servants, female servants, and gave them to Abraham. And return Sarah to his wife, or return Sarah his wife to him. And Abimelech said, Behold, my entire land is before you. Dwell where it pleases you. To Sarah he said, Behold, I have given your brother a thousand pieces of silver. It is a sign of your innocence in the eyes of all who are with you, and before everyone you are vindicated. So again, the, the very people that Abraham had kind of assumed, these people are bad, wicked, and godless actually pretty nice guy actually a pretty pretty good guy considering the fact that he doesn't know God and he has not had the revelation of God's word to him like Abraham has right gives gives Abraham gifts extravagant gifts good host good neighbor right he was supposed to be the wicked godless one and he's a good neighbor which is a little bit of a right it's a little little bit convicting for us as Christians Considering that like Abraham, we have access to the revelation of God. We have access to the word of God. Right? If, if there should be anyone in the world that is living as salt and light and loving their neighbor and being a good host and, and being hospitable and being generous and being kind and responding to the word of God when it was brought into their life, it would be Christians. And yet here in this story, the, the Christian, as it were, Abraham is acting like a non-Christian, and the non-Christians, by virtue of God's common grace in their lives, are acting pr- pretty uh, others-centeredly. It's a tough pill to swallow, right? It's, it's tough to consider that we might not, as Christians, have the monopoly on godly, righteous behavior. Right? There are ways that we as Christians can be repenting and improving There's ways that we as Christians can learn from non-Christians if we're humble enough to admit it and to look for it. Verse 17, Then Abraham prayed, and God healed Abimelech, and he also healed his wife and the female slaves so that they bore children, because God had closed all of the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of of Sarah, Abraham's wife. So uh, even with all this having gone down, all the mistakes that Abraham has made, uh, Abraham is... Still in covenant relationship with God. God has made a binding, irrevocable, can never be changed, never be altered, set in stone forever. Promises to Abraham. God still listens when Abraham prays. God's covenant with Abraham cannot be revoked. And Abraham prays for Abimelech. And the, the, the men and women of their of their country are are, you know, their, their fertility is restored, they're able to have children again. Because Abraham, this prophet of God, imperfect as he may be, prayed to God on behalf of the people. And God listened and heard and answered and blessed them. God, God is faithful to his word. God is faithful to his covenant. Even when God's people are faithless and make boneheaded mistakes time and time again, God is still faithful to his word. And that's really the big idea of, of the story of Abraham and Sarah. There's not a lot of like flattering details and episodes that happen in these chapters. And yet God is faithful even when they are faithless. God always accomplishes his perfect will, even when the people that he is using uh, fall prey to sin and folly. Doubt and fear and pride and unbelief. God uses broken, flawed people to accomplish His beautiful, glorious purposes. Right? God always draws a straight line even when He's using a crooked stick. Abraham was a liar. Multiple occasions, he, he Failed to take care of his wife, protect her, provide. He had an affair, an illegitimate child. He didn't trust God. He took matters into his own hands instead of waiting on God to fulfill His promises. He was arrogant. He was judgmental. Abraham had a lot of issues, a lot of drama, a lot of dysfunction. Sarah, Sarah laughed right in the face of Jesus Christ. Laughed at him. Didn't believe his word. Didn't trust him. Right when Jesus called her to account for it, she lied about it, and yet. Abraham and Sarah are held up as this prototypical example of faith and obedience throughout the entire Bible. It's as if God is trying to say very clearly that my promises and my covenants have more to do with my faithfulness to keep them than they have to do with your faithfulness, right? Romans chapter 9. It does not depend on human will or exertion, but rather on God who has mercy. God chose Abraham and Sarah. God called them out of their former way of life. God gave them a new life. God gave them a new ministry. God called them to start a new family. The family of, of God. And no matter how many blunders they kept stepping in along the way, God was faithful. God carried them. God used them. That's how God works in the lives, that's how God works in your life, in the lives of his, of his people, right? God called you out of sin and folly and doubt and fear and pride and unbelief, and God is calling you to himself, and God is calling you to a ministry that is of vital importance. I don't know what it is, but God is calling you to something, just like he was calling Abraham to something, serving in a particular way, becoming a member, aspiring to the the office of elder or deacon, share the gospel with a friend or a family member or a colleague or a a neighbor. God's calling you to invest in a particular relationship so that you can disciple or mentor someone or, or learn from them. I don't know what ministry God has called you to, but he's called you to something, and that ministry is, like Abraham's, of vital importance. And if you... Like Abraham, feel like you're not up to the task, or feel like you've made one too many bone headed mistakes, or feel like there's no way that God could use someone like you to do something like that. If you feel like that, then you feel exactly like Abraham and Sarah did, and yet God used Abraham and Sarah in spite of themselves. Because God uses broken, sinners to accomplish his glorious purposes Jesus came to die for you, Jesus came to forgive your sin, Jesus came to reconcile you to God Jesus is your sufficiency before God, not yourself not your works, not your righteousness, not your accomplishments but Christ and who he is and what he has done and so God is not calling us to be perfect, God is calling us to trust in him God is calling us to step out in faith into what he's calling us to without fear that we're not good enough because the reality is we don't, like Abraham and Sarah, we don't have to be good enough. We just have to trust in Christ, look away from ourselves and look to him and trust him and obey him. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you uh, don't Call people who are already qualified but rather that you take, you take the people that you have called and you forgive them and you, you qualify them to serve you in ways that you have called them to we thank you Lord that even uh, when we make mistakes like Abraham and Sarah did that you are still faithful you are always faithful to use us for your glory and Lord we, we pray that you would help us to trust in you and believe your word and walk in obedience to you. It's in Christ's name that we pray.